turn your Bibles to James chapter 5. America is really a rich country. Really a rich country. And throughout the world, we're known as the richest nation in the world. And statistics actually back up that seemingly arrogant claim. (laughs) Median household income in 2020, the median household income was $67,521. Now, I realize not everybody's hitting that, so, but that's, that's a statistic. The median worldwide income is less than $2,000 per year. Okay? Just to get some perspective, that means half of the households in America make more than 30 times the worldwide income. As one that has lived in other lands and subsistent cultures, we are a very rich nation. We have the most millionaires and billionaires in the world. 41% of the world's millionaires are in America. And the median household income of $67,521 places us beyond the top 1% of global world's population. So folks, I want to tell you, we're all one percenters. It's a matter, it's rather relative of what you're comparing it to. Even the bottom 10% of household incomes of more than $14,000 is over seven times the average global income. We are a blessed nation. Now, taking such statistics into consideration means that the instruction and guidance and warnings in the Bible about riches and being rich are applicable to all of us, even though most of us, if not all of us, would probably consider ourselves not rich. There's probably nothing more limited than our thinking about our position. Most people that have a nice home and have families that are put together, things are going okay for them, would consider themselves middle class. Middle class. But when you compare yourself to others in the world, you'll see that it's different. There's probably nothing more linked with worldliness than the dangers that riches bring to people. And Jesus warned about the dangers Inherent in riches in Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Paul addressed the problem of longing to be rich in 1 Timothy chapter 6, for the love of money is the root of all evil. The, the love of money is the root of all evil. And some, by longing for it, mark those words, the love of money and longing for it, okay? It's not money that's evil, it's the longing for it and the love of it. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Something you may not have considered is that you don't need to be rich 
to be enslaved by riches. We saw that in Italiabo. <laughs> they didn't have two nickels to rub together. But man, were they enslaved by the idea of having something, having wealth. You see, the love of and longing for wealth does not necessarily mean you already have it, just that you really, really, really want it, right? And that's greed, that's lust. Looking at James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, we see that James paints a pretty grim picture of the wicked rich. Let me read that to you. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. And their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. And you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Let's pray. Father, as we contemplate these warnings about riches, Lord, let us take it to heart. Even though it's written to those who were not believers in the midst of the audience that James was writing to, Father, there are lessons to be learned, and so... Let your Holy Spirit have liberty in our own hearts uh, to bring conviction where we need to repent. And, Father, to bring encouragement to those of us that can be encouraged by these words. And, Father, let us grieve for many who are trusting in riches and not Christ, for they are many. We pray these things in Jesus' name. So, when we look at James 1 through 5, all the wealth that we can amass, we are told in Deuteronomy 8, 17 through 18, is from God. Otherwise, you might say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth, but you need to remember that the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. And isn't that what the world does? They, they take the benefits of God and reject God. I, I titled this, you know, Wealth Without God, the sermon. I, I often think, I love music. I love all forms of music, different types of music and singing. And I, I, I have some really favorite musicians who are ungodly people. But the gift that God gave them is so magnificent but they give no glory to God at all. Now, many of you read that Pink said, you know, don't listen to her music anymore if you are for a row. And I don't know how many of you actually listen to Pink ever. Um, 
I know of her. I've listened to her before. I didn't like her music that much, so it's no big loss. But the arrogance, right? As if the whole world is just at her feet listening to her music and she's going to disallow you now from listening to her music. Wow. It just slays me how arrogant people can be. Proverbs 10.22 says, It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. And he adds no sorrow to it. Looking at the context of what we just read, it's not difficult to see that these six verses are a contrast to verses 7 through 12. So let me read them to you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it and until it gets uh, the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. And, and don't complain, brethren, against one another, so that, you're, uh, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. You see, James is drawing a contrast here between the wicked rich and those who had their... their Riches and their homes and their businesses destroyed through persecution because they trusted Jesus Christ. That's what's happening in these first 12 verses of chapter 5. And so don't lose out on that. Another reason to understand James is addressing the wealthy but non-believers, the wicked rich, is his use of the second person pronoun, you and yours, used at least 11 times in the first six verses, combined with the complete absence of the term brethren, and then comparing verses 7 through 12, where James uses the term brethren three times, it seems obvious he's doing a comparison. You remember that I've told you the context you have to understand. James is writing a mixed multitude. He's writing a group of people that were mixed together with true believers and those who were not believers. And you'll see this come out even more as we go through the text. One commentator said it this way, it's, it's more probable that those addressed in verses 1 through 6 are non-Christian Jewish owners of large estates in communities where the readers lived. And that many of James' Christian readers had lost their homes and their livelihoods and accumulated wealth because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost like, you know, um, he could be writing to the Ukrainian believers that are destitute now because of war. The writer of the Hebrew epistle addressed such a thing. In Hebrews 10, he says this, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, when you got saved, you endured a great conflict of suffering partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, 
knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Beloved, when persecution comes for the sake of truth and for his word and for the Lord Jesus Christ, we may lose our homes and our properties and our accumulated wealth. And what this text is telling us, even in the face of that, be patient. Don't hate those that are persecuting you. It's Jesus' advice as well, right? And so I want you to see as we go through this first portion of James 5, keep in mind 7 through 12 so that you don't become overfilled with grief because it beautifully balances the strong indictment against the wrong use of wealth in verses 1 through 6. And all the hurt and injustice that so often accompanies the wicked rich with the anticipated coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the comforting encouragement his coming brings to genuine believers. That's, that's what we want to look at today. So let's look at the intended audience. Chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Not the kind of thing you say to a born-again person. Not, not an encouragement statement to the brethren, of which is not even used in this section. Come now. Exactly the same emphatic call-out that James used to begin the last section, addressing those who made plans without taking God and his will into consideration. Remember? Literally, the term means, hey, you, listen, I want you to listen, behold. Because he wanted them to understand. Pay close attention to what I'm about to say. You rich, you rich. James makes no mistake as to who he's addressing. And in the first six verses, there's no usage of the term brother. But he does use the second person pronoun, you and your, at least 11 times in this section. He's talking about them, (laughs) okay? Modern vernacular, he's talking about the oppressors. This fits in right with social justice today. Man, if I was a social justice warrior, I could just sing today. But there's something more than what's going on in social justice and the oppressors and the oppressed. Because the oppressed, as seen in verses 7 through 12, are told to endure, be quiet, Don't be haters. Just the opposite of what the social justice movement tells the oppressed to do. Stand up. Get what's yours. You deserve, right? Totally different. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Weeping and wailing. Where else does the scripture use such terms? Hmm. All through the Gospels, Jesus speaks of the outer darkness where sinners and hypocrites will be cast, and there will be weeping and gnashing of their teeth. Howl is a word used only here in the New Testament, and it pictures people that are sobbing aloud, weeping bitterly, and punctuated howls due to intense grief. You do not know what, what grieving is like and, and, and howling until you have been in Asia and experienced a family that has lost a loved one. They, they grieve differently than we grieve here. And all of this is portrayed as imminent. The miseries which are coming upon you, 
James says. He's not speaking to believers, but clearly to ones in the assembly who are facing certain judgment, and James is predicting what judgment will be like for them. Actually, as he's identifying the audience that he's addressing, he's really hoping that they'll get a, lo- a, a, a thought here, that they'll be shaken in their confidence in their riches and their wealth and maybe turn to Christ. That's pretty hard to do when you're sitting high and mighty and you've got everything that you need and everything's going your way. And then you're looking at those that did turn to Christ and they lost everything, right? Truly a work of God, salvation is. What will bring them to such an end? In the remaining verses, James tells them exactly what will bring them to such miseries by describing four practices of the wicked rich. He gives out an indictment in verses 2 through 4. He says, you hoard resources and you hoard them to yourself, verses 2 to 3. James identifies the first practice at the end of verse 3. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. These rich were doing just what Jesus described in the story of the foolish rich man that built his barns because he was so rich, he needed more barns to store his riches. And, And God says, you fool. Tonight, your soul will be required of you. And his confidence was totally in all his riches. In studying this passage in James, I came across this story. There's a, a family called the Wendells that lived in New York. And John Wendell with his sisters were some of the most miserly people of all time. Although they had received a huge inheritance from their parents, they spent very little of it and did all that they could to keep their wealth for themselves. This is a true story. John was able to influence five of his six sisters to never marry. And they lived in the same house in New York City for 50 years. When the last sister died in 1931, her estate was valued at over 100 million bucks. That's some change at that time. And her only dress was the one that she had made herself, and she had worn it for 25 years. I know what that's like. My wife used to sew shirts for me, and they would last forever. I just wanted a store-bought shirt. They were nice shirts, but after three, four, five years, there's no wear on them. No seams are breaking loose. She's a good seamstress. 25 years, she wore the same dress. The windows had such a compulsion to hold on to their possessions that they lived like paupers. And there's more stories like this. You've heard about these. Even worse, they were like the kind of person Jesus referred to who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. They all died, left their riches here. I don't know. The story didn't say what happened to those riches. But obviously, they were left to something or someone else. The sadness of such folly is clearly laid out in James 5, 2 through 3. Here James identifies three types of wealth possessed by these wicked rich, which are going to come to an end. Food and stuff, okay? Verse 2, your riches have rotted. Food and stuff. That these riches rotted shows James is speaking of perishables. And the word literally means to decay like a rotten piece of fruit or grain that has gotten wet 
might rot. Could easily be referring to vast stores of grain like that rich, foolish farmer that we talked about in Luke 12. Secondly, clothes and stuff. Clothes and stuff. Verse 2, your garments have become moth-eaten. Clothes make the man, so they say. But James, in James' day, that was really true. And again, I go to Asian cultures. Asian people overseas wear their wealth. They wear it in clothes, and they wear it in jewelry. And they don't use banks. They use their own bodies for their wealth. The rich wore long robes at the time of this writing, when James was writing, and they were embroidered, and sometimes even with silver or gold, that was sewn into the fabric. And as you might expect, these priceless garments would be stored, and sometimes the moths would get to them and develop, and the rich would suffer terrible loss due to moths, ruining their precious robes. So James is writing realistically here with what could actually happen and did happen. And the picture that James paints is quite literal, but points to the deeper motivations of their hearts. You put your faith in something like that, and it goes, <laughs> I don't, don't put your faith in 401Ks, people. I'm, I'm serious. I mean, you know, I'm not going to say, you know, get gold because you like the feel of it, but, you know, something like that. I, I don't know, if you're, if you're putting your faith in the things of this world, you will be disappointed if not before, when you die, because you cannot take it with you. You should be working toward eternity and the riches of eternity. Now is when you have the chance to do that. I encourage you to do that. Don't be all taken up with food and stuff. Don't be all taken up with clothes and stuff. And definitely don't be all taken up with money and stuff. You see... He says, your gold and your silver have rusted. Now, has anybody ever seen gold rust? You ever seen silver rust? No. Precious metals like that don't really rust, but James is using these three aspects of personal wealth as an illustration and an indictment against the rich to show them the folly of trusting in such things. He could be meaning that for all the good their gold and silver will do them, it might as well be iron, which does rust. Because it's not going to do them any good in eternity. Judgment is coming. And their gold and their silver might as well be mere iron that rusts away. Not going to help them at all. This illustration carries if you consider the way in which rust manifests itself in iron almost like a cancer that eats its way through a seemingly solid metal. You see that putting confidence in something that you think is worthy of your confidence, James and the Bible tells us it is not. Don't be deceived in these things. In the same way, James warns that these rich and their gold and their silver will consume their flesh like fire. Wow. One final note from verse 2. Consider the time frame in which this all takes place. He says it's in the last days that you've stored up your treasure. Do you know what the last days are? It's that time period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. It's very important he says that because the whole next section of 7 through 12, he's looking towards that coming of Jesus Christ and saying, get your eyes set on that. 
The last song we sang, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. That's a beautiful song. And when you do turn your eyes upon Jesus, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. Amy Carmichael talked about holding on to the things of this earth that you love loosely because it hurts when God pries your fingers off those things. It's important that we have eternal perspective. It hints at what's further developed, as I said in verses 7 through 12 in the second coming. The whole idea of verses 2 and 3 is that the very thing in which the wicked rich place their confidence, they're going to lose. It's going to be a witness against them rather than a help to them. Look at verse 3. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. The very thing that they thought was going to help them in the judgment day is going to witness against them. It was also a reminder to genuine believers who read James' letter not to envy the rich or desire what they possibly once had themselves, but lost due to persecution. Look at their state and weep for them. They have not eternal life. You do. Be encouraged. Hang on. Endure. And wait for the soon return of the Lord. Unjust gain through withholding wages is another way that they were doing. In verse 4 it says, Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields. You're holding it back. It's harvest time. And there's luxuriant fields where massive amounts of grain has been gathered by hand, by common laborers. And the owner of those fields, through such a great harvest, and even though he had a great harvest, and become exceedingly wealthy through that harvest, he doesn't pay the laborers. A little phrase has been withheld from you. The verb form shows that it was not just delayed. He didn't just not pay them on time. It really means there was a complete neglect. It's done and there will be no pay forthcoming. He ripped them off. Talk about an oppressor of a righteous man. This is oppression and exploitation of the poor. And it's everywhere in the New Testament or Old Testament where this is just anathema. You don't treat people like this. You will not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until the morning. You pay them at the end of the day. You don't even hold it overnight. Day laborers, right? Leviticus 19. Deuteronomy 24 says, You will not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land. In your towns, you will give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he may not cry out against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. You know, we have an influx of immigrants uh, into our nation now, uh, millions actually, and they're going to have to work somewhere. Can you imagine? the abuse that those people are going to experience because they have no one to turn to. They're illegal. And if the employer wants to rip them off, it's fair game, 
And we've all heard of that. It's just going to be multiplied more and more. Whoa, pray for our nation. Pray for our nation. We will all bear the consequences of a nation that goes wrong. The righteous suffer with the wicked when the wicked reign. Remember that and pray. It says that their cry could reach to the ears of the Lord of the Sabaoth. The name of the Lord here is one of the most majestic titles of God. It means the ruler over the world and the heavenly host, all the angels. And it says that it's to his name that their cry will go up. Why? Because he's a warrior, God, and he will take vengeance. This title for Yahweh is used 23 times in the book of Malachi. Interesting. Maybe read the book of Malachi. 23 times that title for God is used as a sovereign God and for the same kind of encouragement to encourage those that were oppressed. We have seen James' intended audience, the wicked rich. We've seen the indictment that came upon them and the different aspects of it. And why? Because of their indulgent lifestyle that's revealed. You've lived luxuriously and in wanton pleasure. It's in stark contrast to the poor laborer who had their pay withheld that these wicked rich live in the lap of luxury. Jesus describes such men as in Luke 16 in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, right? There it says that the man was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. He had no needs. And Lazarus picked up crumbs from underneath his table and the dogs licked on his sores. The mention of living this luxurious life on earth refers to the fact that the pleasures enjoyed were earthly rather than heavenly. The phrase wanton pleasure can be better understood in our day as extravagant and unrestrained self-indulgent. The life of the rich. I mean, we watch reality shows, don't we? The way that they live, the way that they just flaunt their wealth and their... They just do whatever they want to do all over the world. Flying there on their private jets for criminy's sakes. Think of the billionaires. And they have no need to even consider the cost of an acquisition where a poor man wonders where his next meal will come from. I remember being down in California in Los Angeles shortly after we came back from the mission field after 20 years and we had a dear friend that uh, was he was an Indonesian man, and he was living in a town when there was an Islamic uh, program against Christians in the town that we kind of sourced ourselves out of. We lived in a tribe on an island, but the, the city that we would get our foodstuffs from and everything called Ambon was under attack by Islamic terrorists. And um, it was a Sunday morning, not long after we got back, and we got a call from him in the middle of the night Saturday, and and he was fleeing for his life. And he said, where can I go? Where can I go? He was in our guest house where the missionaries would go out to the city to rest. And he said, they're coming up the hill, up the mountain, and they're burning homes. And I know that the guest house is marked as one. 
Incidentally, I lost all my books and my motorcycle. They were stored in the garage there. Um, they did burn it to the ground, and he was fleeing. And then we went, um, just to tell you what it was like, they were, they were uh, decapitating people and putting the heads on spikes and lining the roads up the mountain with decapitated heads. Uh, it was serious. And we went to uh, Sunday school. And this is at Grace Community Church, so the Sunday school is like 200 people. <laughs> 300, 600, you know, depends. And there, this lady, we were asking for prayer requests. And I mean, I was just devastated by what my friend in Indonesia was experiencing. He was huddled on the docks waiting for a government ship to come rescue them and get them away from the program that was taking place. And it was raining. And uh, so that's where he was. And this lady, bless her heart, she was going to go on a vacation to Hawaii, but she hadn't finished the, the I don't know what you call it, the, the border in one of her rooms in her home. And she was distressed and just all stressed out over that. And please, can you pray for me? And I mean, almost to tears, you know. And I mean, Mary and I just looked at each other and where on earth are we living because we were comparing, right? But you know, the work that God did in our hearts is he reminded us that for that woman, she was in duress because of that. She really was. And she was asking for prayer. Just a different culture. But the affluence that we live with, is it commensurate with the way that you give and your generosity of your time and of your finances to the Lord's work, to others that are in need around us. You see, there are things that we can learn even from this first section here. Such a call out, such a, such a challenge, right? He says, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. This is great. The picture that James gives is the oxen who are fattened for the slaughter. So the day of their, the day of their slaughter, they just gorge them and fill them up with food only to slaughter them. And that's what he's saying is going to happen to these wicked rich, those that are not considering a judgment. Judgment is coming for them, and they're piling up wrath upon wrath, which is about to fall on them, yet they're oblivious to it all, just like that oxen. That's just, wow, double portion here. Why am I getting to eat so much? Well, because we're going to slaughter you. They oppress the righteous, Verse 6, the righteous man. James finally condemns these rich in the end result of sin. There's a strange progression of their sin from greed to wealth to the indulgent living of what they unjustly gain to the final sin of doing whatever is necessary to keep their riches, even to murdering the righteous, to preserve their riches. You've condemned and put to death the righteous man, he says. This goes back to James 2.6 where he identified the rich there who oppress you and drag you into court. Hmm. It all points to the complete injustice of the wicked. Their oppression of the poor. They had the upper hand, not only in their wealth, but also with their wealth and they influenced the judges and so there was no justice for the, for the poor. Corruption, it shows the haste with which murder follows that kind of a 
desire and longing for riches. And it says that the oppressed one does not resist you. Whether because he can't resist, he's unable, or because of an act of their will and they're following Jesus' command in Matthew 5.39, do not resist the evil person. And what James talks about in 7 through 12. Be patient, endure, don't be haters. And these verses warrant the title that was given to James. You know what he was called? Anybody know the title of James? A name that was given to James? James the Just. That's how he was known. James the Just. I mean, what a social warrior, social justice warrior, but a true social justice. Just amazing. He was a defender of the poor and oppressed as he amply displayed the scathing indictment on the wicked rich. He portrays them in stark contrast to the instruction Paul exhorted Timothy to give to the saved rich. You know, there's rich that are saved too. But here's what Paul told them. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on an uncertainty of riches like the wicked rich do. Don't trust in your riches. He says, but on God. Remember what's coming. Who, God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Don't forget where your riches came from. You saved rich. Instruct them to do good. Paul tells Timothy, to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future in eternity so that they may take hold of that which is life itself. You see, life is not made up of things of the earth, right? (laughs) I mean, Jesus told us about that, didn't he? He says, Life isn't made up of these things. It's made up in eternal life with Jesus Christ. So just some thoughts from James. I'm, I'm nearing the end of James. I'll be doing character studies of some of God's all-time greats from the Old Testament as we move into the fall where I'll begin a series on foundations, Genesis 1 through 11. But um, these, these latter verses in James are just really strong and helpful for us. And I hope it was helpful for you today. I know it wasn't a patriotic one. What can I say? I, I don't do Mother's Day. Well, I kind of did a one for Mother's, but didn't do Father's Day. We don't do Valentine's Day. Christmas, I try to kind of do Christmas. But we need God's Word. And, and, you know, an hour a week just is not enough time, folks. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for this day that we celebrate our independence from tyranny, Lord. But it's independence with a purpose. And the purpose was so that we could worship freely and that we could spread the gospel. Because even in the documents that we refer to as the Declaration of Independence, you are named. And in our Constitution, You are named, and you're underneath those documents. And Lord, those documents mean absolutely nothing without the morality that Christianity brings. 
Father, if we're a secular nation, those documents will not stand. They mean nothing. So we pray that as a nation we could repent and that we might have respite so that we might be free to continue to worship you freely and to evangelize. For we pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.